Good evening. Welcome to the Sleepy Time Broadcast. Stories designed for sleep. In each episode, I'll read a piece of literature in a slow and comforting way, in the hopes that I can send you off to dreamland. If you want to support this podcast, donations can be made via a button at ericbra.com. Many are selected to receive customized intros to these sleep stories. Any way that I can say thank you. I also appreciate the few of you that rate and promote this podcast, and me too. (laughs) Thanks. Now, let's get you to sleep. A classic. Apologies for not the best pronunciations, for I do not parlez-vous français. Hopefully it doesn't take you out of the comfort zone. So here is the sleep story, The Phantom of the Opera, by Gaston Leroux. So, let's take a moment to relax, get comfortable, snuggle into the covers, and let's take some deep breaths. In with warmth, and out with fear and anxiety. In with peace. And out with turmoil and stress. In. Good. Now I will begin tonight's sleepy time story. It was the evening on which Messrs. Debienne and Pouligny, the managers of the opera, were giving a last gala performance to mark their retirement. Suddenly, the dressing room of La Sorelli, one of the principal dancers, was invaded by a half a dozen young ladies of the ballet, who had come up from the stage after dancing Pagliacci. They rushed in amid great confusion, some giving vent to forced and unnatural laughter, others to cries of terror. Sorelli, who wished to be alone for a moment, to run through the speech which she was to make to the resigning managers, looked around angrily at the mad and tumultuous crowd. It was little Jamais, the girl with the tip-tilted nose, the forget-me-not eyes, the rose-red cheeks, and the lily-white neck and shoulders who gave the explanation in a trembling voice. It's the ghost. And she locked the door. Sorelli's dressing-room was fitted up with official commonplace elegance, a pure glass, a sofa, a dressing-table, and a cupboard or two provided the necessary furniture. On the walls hung a few engravings, relics of the mother, who had known the glories of the old opera in the Rue Les Pelletiers. Portraits of Vestris, Gardel, Dupont, Bigottini. But the room seemed a palace to the brats of the Corps de Ballet, who were lodged in common dressing rooms, where they spent their time singing, quarreling, smacking the dressers and hairdressers, and buying one another glasses of cassis, beer, or even rum, until the call-boy's bell rang. Sorelli was very superstitious. She shuddered when she heard little Jamais speak of the ghost, called her a silly little fool, and then, 
as she was the first to believe in ghosts in general, and the opera ghost in particular, at once asked for details. Have you seen him? As plainly as I see you now, said little Jamais, whose legs were giving way beneath her, and she dropped with a moan into a chair. Thereupon, little Giri, the girl with eyes black as sloes, hair black as ink, a swarthy complexion, and a poor little skin stretched over her poor little bones, little Giri added, It's the ghost. If that's the ghost, he's very ugly. Oh, yes cried the chorus of ballet girls, and they all began to talk together. The ghost had appeared to them in the shape of a gentleman in dress clothes, who had suddenly stood before them in the passage, without their knowing where he came from. He seemed to have come straight through the wall. Pooh, said one of them, who had more or less kept her head. You see the ghost everywhere. And it was true. For several months there had been nothing discussed at the opera but this ghost in dress clothes who stalked about the building from top to bottom like a shadow who spoke to nobody to whom nobody dared speak and who vanished as soon as he was seen, no one knowing how or where. As became a real ghost, he made no noise in walking. People began by laughing and making fun of this specter dressed like a man of fashion or an undertaker, but the ghost legend soon swelled to enormous proportions among the corps de ballet. All the girls pretended to have met this supernatural being more or less often, and those who laughed the loudest were not the most at ease. When he did not show himself, he betrayed his presence or his passing by accident comic or serious, for which the general superstition held him responsible. Had only one met with a fall, or suffered a practical joke the hands of one of the other girls, or lost a powder puff, it was at once the fault of the ghost, of the opera ghost. After all, who had seen him? You meet so many men in dress clothes at the opera who are not ghosts, but this dress suit had a peculiarity of its own. It covered a skeleton, at least, so the ballet girl said, and, of course, it had death's head. Was all this serious? The truth is that the idea of the skeleton came from the description of the ghost given by Joseph Bouquet, the chief scene-shifter who had really seen the ghost. He had run up against the ghost on the little staircase by the footlights which leads to the cellars. He had seen him for a second, for the ghost had fled, and to anyone who cared to listen to him he said, He is extraordinarily thin, and his dress coat hangs on a skeleton frame. His eyes are so deep that you can hardly see the fixed pupils. You just see two black holes, as in a dead man's skull. His skin which is stretched across his bones like a drumhead, is not white, but a nasty yellow. His nose is so little worth talking about 
that you can't see it side-face, and the absence of that nose is a horrible thing to look at. All the hair he has is three or four long dark locks on his forehead and behind his ears. This chief scene-shifter was a serious, sober, steady man, very slow at imagining things. His words were received with interest and amazement, and soon there were other people to say that they too had met a man in dress clothes with a death's head on his shoulders. Sensible men, who had wind of the story, began by saying that Joseph Bouquet had been the victim of a joke played by one of his assistants, and then, one after the other, there came a series of incidents so curious and so inexplicable that the very shrewdest people began to feel uneasy. For instance, a fireman is a brave fellow. He fears nothing, least of all fire. Well, the fireman in question, who had gone to make round of inspection in the cellars, and who, it seems, had ventured a little farther than usual, suddenly reappeared on the stage, pale, scared, trembling, with his eyes starting out of his head, and practically fainted in the arms of the proud mother of little Jamais. And why? Because he had seen coming toward him at the level of his head, but without a body attached to it, a head of fire. And, as I said, a fireman is not afraid of fire. The fireman's name was Pampine. The corps de ballet was flung into consternation. At first sight, this fiery head in no way corresponded with Joseph Bouquet's description of the ghost. But the young ladies soon persuaded themselves that the ghost had several heads, which he changed about as he pleased, and, of course, they at once imagined that they were in the greatest danger. Once a fireman did not hesitate to faint, leaders in front row and back row girls alike had plenty of excuses for the fright that made them quicken their pace when passing some dark corner or ill-lighted corridor. Sorelli herself, on the day after the adventure of the fireman, placed a horseshoe on the table in front of the stage doorkeeper's box, which every one who entered the opera, otherwise than as a spectator, must touch before setting foot on the first tread of the staircase. This horseshoe was not invented by me any more than any other part of this story, alas, and may still be seen on the table in the passage outside the stage doorkeeper's box when you enter the opera through the court known as the Cour de l'Administration. To return to the evening in question, it's the ghost. Little Jamais had cried. An agonizing silence now reigned in the dressing room. Nothing was heard but the hard breathing of the girls. At last, Jamais, flinging herself upon the farthest corner of the wall, with every mark of real terror on her face, whispered, Listen! Everybody seemed to hear a rustling outside the door. There was no sound of footsteps. It was like light silk sliding over the panel. Then it stopped. Sorelli tried to show more pluck than the others. She went up to the door 
and in a quavering voice asked, Who's there? But nobody answered. Then feeling all eyes upon her, watching her last movement, she made an effort to show courage and said very loudly, Is there anyone behind the door? Oh, yes, yes, of course there is, cried the little dried plum of a Meg Giri, heroically holding Sorelli back by her gauze skirt. Whatever you do, don't open the door. Oh, Lord, don't open the door. But Sorelli, armed with a dagger that never left her, turned the key and drew back the door while the ballet girls retreated to the inner dressing room, and Meg Giri sighed. Mother! Sorelli looked into the passage bravely. It was empty. A gas flame in its glass prison cast a red and suspicious light into the surrounding darkness without succeeding in dispelling it and the dancer slammed the door again with a deep sigh. No, she said, there is no one there. Still, we saw him, Jamais declared, returning with timid little steps to her place beside Sorelli. He must be somewhere prowling about. I shan't go back to dress. We had better all go down to the foyer together, at once, for the speech, and we will come up again together. And the child reverently touched the little coral finger ring which she wore as a charm against bad luck, while Sorelli, stealthily, with the tip of her pink right thumbnail, made a St. Andrew's cross on the wooden ring which adorned the fourth finger of her left hand. She said to the little ballet girls, Come, children, pull yourselves together. I dare say no one has ever seen the ghost. Yes, yes, we saw him. We saw him just now, cried the girls. He had his death's head and his dress coat, just as when he appeared to Joseph Bouquet. And Gabriel saw him too, said Jamais, only yesterday, yesterday afternoon, in broad daylight. Gabriel, the chorus master? Why, yes, didn't you know? And he was wearing his dress clothes in broad daylight? Who? Gabriel? Why, no, the ghost. Certainly, Gabriel told me so himself, and that's what he knew him by. Gabriel was in the stage manager's office. Suddenly the door opened, and a Persian entered. You know, the Persian has the evil eye. Oh, yes, answered the little ballet girls in chorus, warding off ill luck by pointing their forefinger and their little finger at the absent Persian, while their second and third fingers were bent on the palm and held down by the thumb. You know how superstitious Gabriel is, continued Jamais. However, he is always polite. When he meets the Persian, he just puts his hand in his pocket and touches his keys. Well, the moment the Persian appeared in the doorway, Gabriel gave one jump from his chair to the lock of the cupboard so as to touch iron. In doing so, he tore a whole skirt of his overcoat on a nail. Hurrying to get out of the room, he banged his forehead against a hat peg and gave himself a huge bump. Then, suddenly stepping back, he skinned his arm on the screen near the piano 
He tried to lean on the piano, but the lid fell on his hands and crushed his fingers. He rushed out of the office like a madman, slipped on the staircase, and came down the hole of the first flight on his back. I was just passing with Mother. We picked him up. He was covered with bruises, and his face was all over blood. We were frightened out of our lives, but all at once he began to thank Providence that he had got off so cheaply. Then he told us what had frightened him. He had seen the ghost behind the Persian, the ghost with the death's head, just like Joseph Bouquet's description. Jamais had told her story ever so quickly, as though the ghost were at her heels, and was quite out of breath at the finish. A silence followed, while Sorelli polished her nails in great excitement. It was broken by little Giri, who said, Joseph Bouquet would do better to hold his tongue. Why should he hold his tongue? asked somebody. That's mother's opinion, replied Meg, lowering her voice and looking all about her as though fearing lest other ears than those present might overhear. And why is it your mother's opinion? Hush! Mother says the ghost doesn't like being talked about. And why does your mother say so? Because, because nothing. This reticence exasperated the curiosity of the young ladies who crowded round little Giri, begging her to explain herself. They were there, side by side, leaning forward simultaneously in one movement of entreaty and fear, communicating their terror to one another, taking a keen pleasure in feeling their blood freeze in their veins. I swore not to tell, gasped Meg, but they left her no peace and promised to keep the secret until Meg, burning to say all she knew, began with her eyes fixed on the door. Well, it's because of the private box. What private box? The ghost's box. Has the ghost a box? Oh, do tell us. Not so loud, said Meg. It's box five, you know, the box on the grand tier next to the stage door on the left. Oh, nonsense. I tell you it is. Mother has charge of it. But you swear you won't say a word? Of course, of course. Well, that's the ghost's box. No one has had it for over a month except the ghost. And orders have been given at the box office that it must never be sold. And does the ghost really come there? Yes. Then somebody does come? Why, no. The ghost comes, but there is nobody there. The little ballet girls exchanged glances. If the ghost came to the box, he must be seen, because he wore a dress coat and a death's head. This was what they tried to make Meg understand, but she replied, That's just it. The ghost is not seen, and he has no dress coat and no head. All that talk about his death's head and his head of fire is nonsense. There's nothing in it. You only hear him when he is in the box. Mother has never seen him, but she has heard him. Mother knows, because she gives him his program. Sorelli interfered. 
Jerry, child, you're getting at us. Thereupon little Jerry began to cry. I ought to have held my tongue, if mother ever came to know. But I was quite right. Joseph Bouquet had no business to talk of things that don't concern him. It will bring him bad luck. Mother was saying so last night. There was a sound of hurried and heavy footsteps in the passage, and a breathless voice cried, Cecile, Cecile, are you there? It's mother's voice, says Jamais. What's the matter? She opened the door. A respectable lady, built on lines of a Pomeranian grenadier, burst into the dressing room and dropped groaning into a vacant armchair. Her eyes rolled madly in her brick-dusted colored face. How awful, she said. How awful. What? What? Joseph Bouquet. What about him? Joseph Bouquet is dead. The room became filled with exclamations, with astonished outcries, with scared requests for explanations. Yes, he was found hanging in the third-floor cellar. It's the ghost, little Jiri blurted, as though in spite of herself. But she at once corrected herself, with her hands pressed to her mouth. No, no, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. All around her, her panic-stricken companions repeated under their breaths, Yes, it must be the ghost. Sorelli was very pale. I shall never be able to recite my speech, she said. Majame, give her opinion. While she emptied a glass of liqueur that happened to be standing on a table, the ghost must have something to do with it. The truth is that no one ever knew how Joseph Bouquet met his death. The verdict at the inquest was natural suicide. In his memoirs of manager, M. Moncharmin, one of the joint managers who succeeded Messrs. Dibien and Poligny, describes the incident as follows. A grievous accident spoiled the little party which Messrs. Debien and Poligny gave to celebrate their retirement. I was in the manager's office when Mercier, the acting manager, suddenly came darting in. He seemed half mad and told me that the body of a scene-shifter had been found hanging in the third cellar under the stage, between a farmhouse and a scene from the Roy de la Hour, I shouted, Come and cut him down. By the time I had rushed down the staircase and the Jacob's ladder, the man was no longer hanging from his rope. So this is an event which Monsieur Montcharmin thinks natural. A man hangs at the end of a rope. They go to cut him down. The rope has disappeared. Oh, Monsieur Montchamin found a very simple explanation. Listen to him. It was just after the ballet, and leaders and dancing girls lost no time in taking their precautions against the evil eye. There you are. Picture the corps de ballet scuttling down the Jacob's ladder and dividing the suicide's rope among themselves in less time than it takes to write. When, on the other hand, I think of the exact spot where the body was discovered, the third cellar underneath the stage, imagine that somebody must have been interested in seeing that the rope disappeared after it had effected its purpose, and time will show if I am wrong. 
The horrid news soon spread all over the opera, where Joseph Bouquet was very popular. The dressing rooms emptied, and the ballet girls crowding around Sorelli like timid sheep around their shepherdess made for the foyer through the ill-lit passages and staircases, trotting as fast as their little pink legs would carry them. I have the antidote, which is quite authentic, from Monsieur Pedro Gaillard himself, the late manager of the opera. On the first landing, Sorelli ran against the Comte de Charnier, who was coming up the stairs. The Count, who was generally so calm, seemed greatly excited. I was just going to you, he said, taking off his hat. Oh, Sorelli, what an evening! And Christine Day, what a triumph! Impossible, said Meg Giri. Six months ago, she used to sing like a crock. But do let us get by, my dear Count, continues the brat with a saucy curtsy. We are going to inquire after a poor man who was found hanging by the neck. Just then, the acting manager came fussing past and stopped when he heard this remark. What? he exclaimed roughly. Have you girls heard already? Well, please forget about it for tonight. And above all, don't let Monsieur Debienne and Monsieur Poligny hear. It would upset them too much on their last day. They all went to the foyer of the ballet, which was already full of people. The Comte de Charnier was right. No gala performance ever equaled this one. All the great composers of the day had conducted their own works in turns. Foire and Krauss had sung, and on that evening, Christine Day had revealed her true self for the first time to the astonished and enthusiastic audience. Gounod had conducted the funeral march of the marionette, Ryer his beautiful overture to Siguar, Saint-Saëns, the danse macabre, and the reverie orientale, Messinet, an unpublished Hungarian march, Gerard, his carnival de Libes, the waltz lent from Sylvia and the pizzicate from Coppelia. Miel, Krauss, had sung the bolero in the Vespri Siciliani. And Miel, Denise Bloch, the drinking song in Lucrezia Borgia. But the real triumph was reserved for Christine Day, who had begun by singing a few passages from Romeo and Juliet and it was the first time that the young artist sang in this work of Gounod, which had not been transferred to the opera, and which was revived at the Opera Comique after it had been produced at the old Theatre Lyrique by Amy Carvalho. Those who heard her say that her voice in these passages was seraphic, but this was nothing to the superhuman notes that she gave forth in the prison scene and the final trio in Faust, which she sang in the palace La Carlotta, who was ill. No one had ever heard or seen anything like it. Day revealed a new Margarita that night, a Margarita of a splendor, a radiance hitherto unsuspected, the whole house went mad, rising to its feet, shouting, cheering, clapping, while Christine sobbed and fainted in the arms of her fellow singers and had to be carried to her dressing room. A few subscribers, however, protested. Why had so great a treasure been kept from them all that time? Till then, Christine Day had played a good Sibyl to Carlotta's rather too splendidly material Margarita. 
and it had needed Carlotta's incomprehensible and inexcusable absence from this gala night for the little day at a moment's warning to show all that she could do in a part of the program reserved for the Spanish diva. Well, what the subscribers wanted to know was why had Debienne and Poligny applied today, when Carlotta was taken ill? Did they know of her hidden genius? And if they knew of it, why had they kept it hidden? And why had she kept it hidden? Oddly enough, she was not known to have a professor of singing at that moment. She had often said she meant to practice alone for the future. The whole thing was a mystery. The Comte de Chaunet, standing up in his box, listened to all this frenzy and took part in it by loudly applauding. Philippe-Georges-Marie Comte de Chaunet was just forty-one years of age. He was a great aristocrat and a good-looking man. Above middle height and with attractive features, in spite of his hard forehead and his rather cold eyes. He was exquisitely polite to the women and a little haughty to the men, who did not always forgive him for his successes in society. He had an excellent heart and an irreproachable conscience. On the death of old Count Philibert, he became the head of one of the oldest and most distinguished families in France, whose arms dated back to the fourteenth century. The Chanets owned a great deal of property, and when the old Count, who was a widower, died, it was no easy task for Philippe to accept the management of so large an estate his two sisters and his brother Raoul would not hear of a division and waived their claim to their shares, leaving themselves entirely in Philippe's hands, as though the right of primogeniture had never ceased to exist. When the two sisters married on the same day, they received their portion from their brother not as a thing rightfully belonging to them, but as a dowry for which they thanked him. The Comte de Charnay, né de Morose de Le Martinaire, had died in giving birth to Raoul, who was born twenty years after his elder brother. At the time of the old Count's death, Raoul was twelve years of age. Philippe busied himself actively with the youngster's education. He was admirably assisted in this work, first by his sisters and afterward by an old aunt, the widow of a naval officer who lived at Brest and gave young Raoul a taste for the sea. The lad entered the Borda training ship, finished his course with honors and quietly made his trip round the world. Thanks to powerful influence, he had just been appointed a member of the official expedition on board the Riquin, which was to be sent to the Arctic Circle in search of the survivors of the D'Artois expedition, of whom nothing had been heard for three years. Meanwhile, he was enjoying a long furlough, which would not be over for six months, and already the dowagers of the Faubourg Saint-Germain were pitying the handsome and apparently delicate stripling for the hard work in store for him. The shyness of the sailor lad, I was almost saying his innocence, was remarkable. He seemed to have but just left the woman's apron strings. As a matter of fact, petted as he was by his two sisters and his old aunt. He had retained from this purely feminine education manners that were almost candid 
and stamped with a charm that had nothing yet been able to sully. He was a little over twenty-one years of age and looked eighteen. He had a small, fair mustache, beautiful blue eyes, and a complexion like a girl's. Philippe spoiled Raoul. To begin with, he was very proud of him and pleased to foresee a glorious career for his junior in the navy in which one of their ancestors, the famous Chani de la Roche, had held the rank of admiral. He took advantage of the young man's leave of absence to show him Paris, with all its luxurious and artistic delights. The Count considered that at Raoul's age it is not good to be too good. Philippe himself had a character that was very well balanced in work and pleasure alike. His demeanor was always faultless, and he was incapable of setting his brother a bad example. He took him with him wherever he went. He even introduced him to the foyer of the ballet. I know that the Count was said to be on terms with Sorelli, but it could hardly be reckoned as a crime for this nobleman, a bachelor, with plenty of leisure, especially since his sisters were settled, to come and spend an hour or two after dinner in the company of a dancer, who, though not so very, very witty, had the finest eyes that ever were seen. And, besides, there are places where a true Parisian, when he has the rank of Comte de Chonet, is bound to show himself, and at that time the foyer of the ballet at the opera was one of those places. Lastly, Philippe would perhaps not have taken his brother behind the scenes of the opera if Raoul had not been the first to ask him, repeatedly renewing his request with a gentle obstinacy which the Count remembered at a later date. On that evening, Philippe, after applauding the day, turned to Raoul and saw that he was quite pale. Don't you see, said Raoul, that the woman's fainting? You look like fainting yourself, said the Count. What's the matter? But Raoul had recovered himself and was standing up. Let's go and see, he said. She never sang like that before. The Count gave his brother a curious smiling glance and seemed quite pleased. They were soon at the door leading from the house to the stage. Numbers of subscribers were slowly making their way through. Raoul tore his gloves without knowing what he was doing, and Philippe had too kind a heart to laugh at him for his impatience, but he now understood why Raoul was absent-minded when spoken to, and why he always tried to turn every conversation to the subject of the opera. They reached the stage, and pushed through the crowd of gentlemen, scene-shifters, supers and chorus-girls, Raoul leading the way, feeling that his heart no longer belonged to him, his face set with passion, while Count Philippe followed him with difficulty and continued to smile. At the back of the stage, Raoul had to stop, before the inrush of the little troop of ballet girls who blocked the passage which he was trying to enter. More than one chafing phrase darted from little made-up lips to which he did not reply, and at last he was able to pass and dived into the semi-darkness of a corridor ringing with the name of Day, Day. The Count was surprised to find that Raoul knew the way. He had never taken him to Christine's himself, and came to the conclusion that Raoul must have gone there alone, while the Count stayed talking in the foyer with Sorelli. 
who often asked him to wait until was her time to go on, and sometimes handed him the little gaiters in which she ran down from her dressing room to preserve the spotlessness of her satin dancing shoes and her flesh-colored tights. Sorelli had an excuse. She had lost her mother. Postponing this usual visit to Sorelli for a few minutes, the Count followed his brother down the passage that led to Dai's dressing room and saw that it had never been so crammed as on that evening when the whole house seemed excited by her success and also by her fainting fit, for the girl had not yet come to and the doctor of the theater had just arrived at the moment when Raoul entered at his heels. Christine, therefore, received the first aid of the one while opening her eyes in the arms of the other. The Count and many more remained crowding in the doorway. Don't you think, doctor, that those gentlemen had better clear the room? asked Raoul coolly. There's no breathing here. You're quite right, said the doctor, and he sent every one away except Raoul and the maid, who looked at Raoul with the eyes of the most undisguised astonishment. She had never seen him before, and yet dared not question him. And the doctor imagined that the young man was only acting as he did because he had the right to. The Viscount therefore remained in the room, watching Christine as she slowly returned to life, while even the joint managers, Dibien and Poligny, who had come to offer their sympathy and congratulations, found themselves thrust into the passage among the crowd of dandies. The Comte de Chenet, who was one of those standing outside, laughed. Oh, the rogue, the rogue. And he added under his breath, those youngsters with their schoolgirl airs. So he's a chenny after all. He turned to go to Sorelli's dressing room, but met her on the way with her little troop of trembling ballet girls, as we have seen. Meanwhile, Christine Day uttered a deep sigh which was answered by a groan. She turned her head, saw Raoul, and started. She looked at the doctor, on whom she bestowed a smile, then at her maid, then at Raoul again. Monsieur, she said, in a voice not much above a whisper, who are you? Mademoiselle, replied the young man, kneeling on one knee and pressing a fervent kiss on the diva's hand. I am the little boy who went into the sea to rescue your scarf. Christine looked at the doctor and the maid, and all three began to laugh. Raoul turned very red and stood up. Mademoiselle, he said, since you are pleased not to recognize me, I should like to say something to you in private, something very important. When I am better, do you mind? And her voice shook. You have been very good. Yes, you must go, said the doctor, with his pleasantest smile. Leave me to attend to mademoiselle. I am not ill now, said Christine suddenly, with strange and unexpected energy. She rose and passed her hand over her eyelids. Thank you, doctor. I should like to be alone. Please go away, all of you. Leave me. I feel very restless this evening. The doctor tried to make short protest, but, perceiving the girl's evident agitation, he thought the best remedy was not to thwart her, and he went away, saying to Raoul outside, She's not herself tonight. 
She is usually so gentle. Then he said good night, and Raoul was left alone. The whole of this part of the theater was now deserted. The farewell ceremony was no doubt taking place in the foyer of the ballet. Raoul thought Day might go to it, and he waited in the silent solitude. Even hiding in the favoring shadow of a doorway, he felt a terrible pain at his heart, and it was of this that he wanted to speak to Day without delay. Suddenly, the dressing room door opened, and the maid came out by herself, carrying bundles. He stopped her and asked how her mistress was. The woman laughed and said that she was quite well, but that he must not disturb her, for she wished to be left alone, and she passed on. The idea alone filled Raoul's burning brain. Of course Day wished to be left alone for him. Had he not told her that he wanted to speak to her privately? Hardly breathing, he went up to the dressing room and, with his ear to the door to catch her reply, prepared to knock. But his hand dropped. He had heard a man's voice in the dressing room, saying in a curiously masterful tone, Christine, you must love me. And Christine's voice, infinitely sad and trembling, as though accompanied by tears, replied, How can you talk like that, when I sing only for you? Raoul leaned against the panel to ease his pain. His heart, which had seemed gone forever, returned to his breast and was throbbing loudly. The whole passage echoed with its beating, and Raoul's ears were deafened. Surely, if this heart continued to make such a noise, they would hear it inside. They would open the door, and the young man would be turned away in disgrace. What a position for a shani! To be caught listening behind a door, he took his heart in his two hands to make it stop. The man's voice spoke again. Are you very tired? Oh, tonight I gave you my soul, and I am dead, Christine replied. Your soul is a beautiful thing, child, replied the grave man's voice, and I thank you. No emperor ever received so fair a gift. Angels wept tonight. And that's where we stop tonight. I wish you sweet dreams. Good night.